0: Thank you.
1: Dialogue with other Asian American um, narratives, right? Yeah. Um, want to complicate, you know, Asian American narratives, I want to complicate ideas of relationships and how how a man can write about a relationship, or how a man can write about, you know, issues of the body, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to I want to converse with these other writers. That's the joy of being a writer.
2: In this episode of Playtime, my conversation with critically acclaimed and award-winning author. Of this jade world, Ira Sukrumrang. Plus, Carrie Kendall joins me for a hidden history of the song, The Yardbirds. That more coming up. I'm your host, W.C. Turf. I love that talk when you talk like that. Ira Sukrungrang, spelled S U K R U N G R U A N G, is a memoirist, essayist, poet, and fiction writer. He was born right here in Oaklawn, Illinois, a suburb just south of Chicago. Ira is the author of three creative nonfiction books Buddha's Dog and Other Meditations, Southside Buddhist, Talk Thai, The Adventures of Buddhist Boy, The Short Story Collection, The Melting Season, and The Poetry Collection in Thailand, It Is Night. He earned his BA in English from Southern Illinois University Carbondale and his MFA from Ohio State University. He teaches in the MFA program at the University of South Florida and IRA is the president of Sweet, a Literary Confection, a literary nonprofit organization, and is the Richard L. Thomas Professor of Creative Writing at Kenyon College. His book, *This Jade World*, is this year's Book of the Year winner in traditional nonfiction. Ira's website is buddhistboy.com. Ira joined me from his mother's home in Chiang Mai, Thailand. So you won for for the category of traditional nonfiction. So congratulations on being one of this year's Book of the Year award winners. You were the winner for traditional nonfiction. I just received the book yesterday and could not put it down. I'm about five and a half chapters in, and it, it's it's just an astounding, astounding book. And a really quick read with these short little chapters. I, I guess I'll begin here, writing in these in these short brief vignettes, is is kind of an interesting way of writing a memoir why that template did it did it achieve some and 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 i'll, I'll i guess i'll preface preface it by saying this in one of the the chapters you switch to a third person narrative was, was this template helpful in in achieving that that sort of switch between uh between the 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 first and third person narrative?
1: Absolutely. I mean, great question. And, and, you know, thank you again for, for having me on. And mm-hmm. I'm such an I'm so honored to have won the book uh, book of the year for for traditional non, nonfiction, especially as a Chicago, South Side Chicago boy. So, uh-huh. I'm really honored uh-huh. to be here. so the book, it was born from actually a kind of very selfish stance, right, which was it was something that I meant to write just only for myself right and Mm -hmm. to try to get out there to try to to put language to it i think when we put language to it we we give it a certain a different type of power Mm -hmm. and the way to access these moments was via brevity right Mm -hmm. a lot of times when you have identity shaking moments in your life what what happens is especially with breakups right Um, what happens is that you're flooded with these all these millions of moments that a relationship happens, you know, (laughs) um, from beginning to end. And so when the breakup with my ex happened, suddenly I had all these moments and I didn't know what to do with them, right? For me, the first thing when I started writing it was to, to really start small, to think small, to try to grapple with the individual moments in the relationship to really sit there and think about the person, the person I was, the person she was, uh-huh. um, to really, you know, analyze what we wanted, when we began to depart from our wants, right? Because I really think to me, the book is about wanting
0: uh-huh. um,
1: and knowing what we want and how the, how wants change and how those wants you know for especially for me as a boy who grew up in an immigrant family um wanting was an an amoebic thing right it was never static right the idea of the american dream was never static and so for me to access these moments were was to look at them in very short spurts in in the beginning also Uh i think for me that the, the play with point of view shifting to third person and second person you know, I always tell my students when I teach nonfiction that the, the letter I, the pronoun I is a, it's a pronoun responsibility, right? Um, That you, you, when you write in the I and you call it nonfiction, you're saying, this is my story. There are moments sometimes where for me, when I started writing this piece that I didn't want to claim that story yet. I wanted a distance from it. Right. So I, you know, I began writing it in the, the third person or I began writing it in the second person. It's an exercise I give my students all the time actually, right, mm-hmm. um, that we are able to sometimes look at ourselves as characters, better characters, when we depart from ourselves, right? When mm-hmm. we are able to do a Charles Dickens, you know, um, Ebenezer Scrooge, where you, Ebenezer only sees himself As a horrible human being once he's able to see himself as a horrible human being right 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 and so that change in pov allows that departure from self and you begin to look at you know the person you were as a character and as and and you begin to write that person as a character and 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 any good character needs what flaws Mm -hmm. right vulnerabilities right and to to put it on the page and so it started off as that way, but in the end, you know, as subsequent drafts continued, I really kind of enjoyed the you and the he uh, moments. And so I decided to keep it.
2: And there's there's this aspect of, of each of us in which we remember things as a distant self, as another self, as as an abstract of of ourselves rather than seeing it necessarily as. Uh, as as our personal experience, we kind of we kind of view these things in in movie form, Absolutely. And, and which is Absolutely. which is a little bit how I how I saw it. Um, but I, I like your explanation a whole lot better. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, a, as I said earlier, everyone can find themselves in this book. It, it's so intimate and vulnerable which is by, by the way a very very rare thing for a man to write with that level of intimacy and vulnerability how difficult was that for you to make the decision first of all to to strive for that level of vulnerability and and sensitivity and then and then how difficult was it to achieve that
1: oh it's i think i think any work of memoir is a uh, is a work of vulnerability right Uh, i think the reason why readers look or turn to memoir or read memoir is that one they they want to see an a character who is working through an issue that is very common to Mm -hmm. you know to what it is to be human Right? Mm-hmm, um, to mm-hmm. have relationships, um, to belong, long, mm-hmm. um, to want. These are all universal elements there. And yeah, I think to okay. me to me, yeah. when we are you know when you're able to, I always tell my students this when especially when they're writing memoir, is that memoir craves on like, the idea of, of looking at the wound, but also looking beyond the wound, right? looking yeah. past yeah. the wound, right. Yeah. Um, Because eventually that's what one has to do, especially Hmm. in moments of, you know, um, hardship, right? Uh, Not only do we need to see the wound for what it is, we have Mm -hmm. to like go past it, see, you know, what it could be. And so when I situated myself to write this book, I mean, this book was something that is completely antithetical to what I usually do with my other work, which is one, I always tell I always tell my students that you need to have some sort of dramatic or uh, emotional distance mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from the uh, from the the subject matter to write about it with perspective. I think and I think this is what I learned about writing when I wrote this book was that there are some things in our lives that we do not or will not have the appropriate appropriate emotional distance from. Say like memoirs of abuse or or violence right or or rape there's no amount of emotional distance Mm -hmm. right that one can have to write about those 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 topics Mm -hmm. right and I think for me you know this this breakup this this divorce of of of, you know um, a relationship uh with this person for 20 years was such a big identity shaking moment in my life that I couldn't I couldn't write anything else. I had to wow. stop my projects that I was working on before mm-hmm. I, that, that completely halted because I needed to wrestle with, with this, with this. And so I allowed myself a year to the date in Thailand, which I, I'm, I'm in Thailand right now, visiting my, my mom, bringing my six year old to visit his uh, grandma. Um, uh, during the, my annual visits to Thailand, I just sat down for those, you know, four weeks, and wrote the first draft of this book. I'll, you know, my wife would say this too. My wife says <laughs> um, it was a really bad book, <laughs> but but it was a necessary thing to that I needed to do. I needed to sit there. I needed to get it out, even though yeah. that first draft was sparse. It was a hundred pages. I needed to get things started. Right. Uh-huh. I needed to start, you know, looking at, thinking about, um, evaluating, understanding. Um, Trying to gauge or look at not only my kind of um, personal vulnerabilities and pain, but trying to also look at, say, my family. You know, my mom always says that her side of the family is cursed when it comes to relationships, Uh right? Um, And to really evaluate, say, how, how race and gender and, say, body image plays a huge role sometimes in the psyche of a relationship. And one of the things that I wanted to write, and I I think I I love when you said that, one of the things that the the rejection, one of the biggest rejection, and also I think a very big compliment for me for this book from from a publisher was a publisher said, this is really wonderful, you know, this is really a wonderful written book, but it's really chick lit written by a dude, right? And I think there's something about that that rejection that I, that, that this publisher said, that that line that he said that was really eye opening to me about the expectations of what, or how men write about relationships.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And And the damage we do in the way we write about them.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I take, I take that as a compliment. I take that as a way, like, you know, listen, like, you know, why, what, when we look at these things, when we look at, ourselves and we look at our, our expectations of how we are supposed to feel after a relationship like why does how does this configure into into you know um you know what we want what we expect right yeah. Yeah. and so this to me was um was a a you know the writing of this book just the sitting down with these moments and these memories was a both a therapeutic but also eye-opening kind of um, adventure one that mm-hmm. I didn't expect to the, you know things I learned from it I didn't I never expected
2: I was going to ask you if if because I haven't gotten through the whole book yet if this was a healing process or or cathartic or, or compartmentalization and if there was a resolution that you found, if there is a resolution to, to be found in, in books like this, or just a continuing uh, or, or a story of survival or getting or getting through, I, I published a, a war memoir a number of years ago that was it was just simply a compartmentalization, but it wasn't cathartic by by any means
1: you know for me writing is the only way of trying to understand the self right I, you know yeah, growing up yeah. in the south of chicago i yeah. have friends who, who work in garages i have friends who work at the lumberyard i had uh-huh. friends who worked in factories, and the way they understood life and the way they understood made sense of life is through their work through working at with cars to working you know with their hands right for me writing was that access of understanding right and i keep coming back to the original definition of the essay uh-huh. right and the original definition of the essay was never to to answer to conclude or to argue the original the original definition of the essay was to um, to try and so in this book there are many many attempts many uh-huh. many tries At trying to understand all these moments in one's life, right? I always tell my students, and my students will will say this, the hardest part of writing a nonfiction is the ending. How do you end life, (laughs) right? Um, It's continuous, right? And I always tell them, too, one of the things that's really interesting about nonfiction is that the I, the person you're writing about, you,
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's never static. We're never static. By which I mean I always tell them you try to write this, try to write a book within a year. Mm-hmm. Right. And I say that because if you don't, that person you are is different if you come back to it three years ago, three years later. Right. Yeah, You're absolutely. a different person completely. You can't come back to the person you were mm-hmm. and try to write that book. For for me, those you know, those four weeks in Thailand of writing that first draft was essential. Because that was the person I was, and that was the person I was trying to figure myself out at that time. Now, one of the things I've learned about endings in in nonfiction is that an ending in nonfiction is not so much about conclusion, closure, or this idea of like this easy way of of understanding, right? I think a lot Mm -hmm. of times in our culture, we seek for easy ways of understanding. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you get closure? When you know, for example, if you've if you've experienced something really tragic, there's no mm-hmm. such thing as that. Yeah. I think for me, the writing of this book and the uh, writing all of, a lot of my nonfiction is re- revolved around the idea of, okay, this is how I'm gonna live now with this mm-hmm. in my life, and this is how I'm gonna live tomorrow with this in my life, and this is how I want to live the next day with this in my life, right? Um I think the biggest clarity, uh, of writing this book and I, i'll let in the the process of it mm-hmm. and when you get to it you know i'd like to hear your thoughts about it. but when you get to the, 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 the last chapter of this book the last chapter was this book was a last minute edition um this book was about wanting and a lot of i think you know you've probably read parts of it where there's this part of like you know um wanting to be a father
0: mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. a
1: large part of this book Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest clarity for me after having written this book and I wrote this book, you know I started writing it about a year after the, the divorce, but it was a seven year process. At that last minute before I sent it off to the you know to the presses to get printed, I felt like I needed to write a last chapter, a different yeah. chapter. And so in many ways, the biggest clarity of this book was a clarity of of really knowing, you know, what brought, what brings me the most joy out of life, right? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that joy is 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 being a father, right? Is having a son who is upstairs right now, <laughs> wondering where his daddy is. But yeah,
2: <laughs> that's great. And and I'll, I'll so I'll say this: that uh, the artist Frida Kahlo uh, is famously quoted as saying that uh, that she always painted herself because she knows herself the best. I, I'm I'm doing research. Or a book about the culture the, the cultural steps and ascendancies that happened through the arts throughout throughout our history. It's called The History of Light for the Artist, where I talk about that. I think the memoir is really is really related to that fundamental storytelling that we first began at a million years ago or hundreds of thousands of years ago with with the men returning from the hunt and everything that they went through fighting the mammoth and surviving the you know the the, the mountain lions and all. so so all of those stories got wrapped into these into that that storytelling culture that we're we're now just carrying forward through the memoir do you agree with that
1: Oh, I agree like the earliest. I think we've always had an inclination right. I love how yeah. you said the the monolithic man always wanting to to record life, right? This is yeah. fire. this is we hunted. Yeah. I think we've yeah. always wanted to record. I think that 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 the recording of life is, you know, I keep coming back to what Annie Dillard um, said about memoir, right. One, she said that memoir isn't aren't reserved. For the old, mm-hmm. that there's something beautiful about a younger person writing a memoir because I'd say it's a necessity. Of, well, it's a necessity, and they said the edges of their 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 persons aren't as refined yet. They are they're yeah. they're they're in doubt of everything, right? Yeah. They, yeah. you know, um, and so there's something beautiful about seeing that played out through language. Mm -hmm. Um, but she also said that you know memoirists are minor historians Mm -hmm. right and that that what we're doing right here is a record uh, a record of our lives within this larger quilt of you know of lives right that are are happening concurrently right Uh, in this world and I love I love for me one of the things I love about writing is not that I want to share my story, but I want to be in dialogue with mm-hmm. other stories out there. Right. I want to,
0: Indeed.
1: I want to dialogue with other Asian American um, narratives, right. Yeah. Um, I want to complicate, you know, Asian American narratives. I want to complicate ideas of relationships and how, how a man could write about a relationship or how a man can write about, you know, issues of the body. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and I want to I want to converse with these other writers. That's the joy of being a writer to me. Right? is that you know I, that, that I'm in conversation with all these other people who are dealing who are, have written and have do- dealt with similar issues.
2: Right?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. That to me is the beautiful part of this art, this art form.
2: I, uh, I married an artist from Sarajevo during the siege. Her grandmother had had lived through the Second World War and taught them, all of these all these survival um, and, and and beyond survival techniques, how to make how to make a candle with a shoestring and a little bit of cooking oil, how to make honey with, with a little bit of lemon juice uh, that they the, that came in these these MRI packages with the uh, with the mm. uh, Red Cross and and other uh, humanitarian aid. But all of all of these little bits and pieces, were imbued upon upon this the 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 current generations who were surviving at that moment, uh, and and so it became it became a teaching moment. I, I look at I look at memoirs very much the same way. I also look at it like this. At no time in history, uh, and and I, I'm I'm to the Renaissance in the book, and that was that was really the first time that. The common person, Leonardo mm. da Vinci came from a little village. Mm. Um, uh, Giotto came, you know, came came from a little village. Was, uh, if 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 you believe the story, uh, he was he was discovered painting on a rock or or etching a, an, an image on a rock. But that was that was the first time that the common person was was prominent in in history, and and their stories were told. And so I see the memoir as the the democratization of the the common person's voice and their mm-hmm. and their their lesson and their their survival their perspective.
1: Absolutely right. I mean, one of the, the beautiful things about this genre is that, especially this genre, I, I would say in the last you know ten years, is that. Yeah, yeah. Um, narratives by marginalized or also um, uh, peoples of certain class diverse writers diverse Indeed. people are able to to enter this larger you know this larger beautiful larger storytelling community yep um, when I teach the memoir course we look at like you know the, how memoir has been defined like back in the 40s and 50s it was mm-hmm. it, you know someone would say I would be writing my memoirs with an s right And is usually a catalog of what one does in one's life, right? And is usually Uh, uh, written someone important, right? Uh, A politician, a celebrity, a sports figure, someone important. And now nowadays, if you look at contemporary memoirs, uh, we've gone away from we've gone away from kind of the the, the totality of one's life, and Mm -hmm. what we're really looking at are the smaller segments of one's life. And I think. There's there's so much rich material or so much rich storytelling that's coming from 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 the minute than the the larger the larger way of looking yeah, at life yeah. in general.
2: One of the things that that I write about in um, history of light for the artist is is I'm following a photon from from the beginning of the universe through the Renaissance. But but one of the points that I make is that that photon represents truth or represents facts and that that one fact or one <clears> photon <throat> falling upon a dark floor um is is sort of inconsequential but many falling on the floor brings us closer to a greater illumination of mm-hmm. of life and and so i i love i love that that comment that you made about marginalized people or people that were le- that were that have have historically been left out of out of the the narrative and the conversation about this life and yeah. history so absolutely i would argue that this book is anything but traditional <laughs> it reads as a road map of of a broken heart but with each piece and 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 this this i thought was was such an important aspect of of your writing. I found myself trying to pick up on that deeply imbued poetic rhythm that you write in. In in Touch, uh, one of the chapters in the book, you write this, hold me, we scream, hug me. We will continue to want this. Our arms are made to hold. Our bodies are made to be cradled. Humans are puzzle pieces looking for other puzzle pieces that my friend is pure poetry
1: thank you thank you so much
2: so they say that the best comics make the best dramatic actors because because they bring to to those uh to those dramatic parts uh that ingrained comedic rhythm um do you think that that's also true for for poets writing narrative fiction or nonfiction
1: I think we I think one of the beauties of writing this book
0: uh-huh. was
1: that and the choices I made for this book was not was that I was able to write many songs instead of one song oh
0: interesting
2: right? yeah. yeah
1: so if you th- you know I, I always think about like you know the traditional quote-unquote traditional memoir yeah. traditional memoir operates on you know usually on time. Right um, mm-hmm. on linear time and, and the voice you know say it doesn't kind of it doesn't change much throughout the mm-hmm. narrative, right mm-hmm. um I teach uh, you know I teach a memoir course and we read like uh, a wonderful book, one of my favorite books, this boy's Life by Tobias Wolf.
0: Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm.
1: such a you know, what I call a wonderfully traditional memoir because it has a beginning middle end, right It has a voice that carries us throughout the whole piece. I love that book. I can't write that book. Um, mm-hmm. I couldn't write that book for for this particular topic that I'm writing about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know, going back to you know our your original question of writing in small chunks and writing in different POVs, I think one of the things that I wanted to do is that was to represent the fragmentation that happens of the self, the shattering of the self okay. that happens when something you know, big happens to our lives, right? That mm-hmm. we are not one singular person, but we begin to juggle all these other fragmented persons. Suddenly when we experience some, something hard, we we experience the person we are experiences, but we also think about the person we were, the person, you know, we will be, right? And we're juggling all these other, other us's too at the same time. And so in many ways, thinking about language and music, I, you know, one of the biggest joys of writing the book was that, I can I can write one section and utilize one type of music, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Then I can go to the next section. And this section is about, you know, um, you know, time with my mother or something, right? Um, or just just sitting, you know, in Thailand and just kind of observing the world that goes by us, right? And those sentences are longer, right? Because the landscape of Thailand, the flat of central Thailand in particular, yeah. it has that yawning effect, right? And that yawning effect has that lyricism of longer sentences with a lot of cadences and that dip up and down. And then you go to a much more tense chapter or tense section of book. And the sentences are shorter, right? Um, mm-hmm. it's driven by action without thought. Right. Interesting. Um, and so that presents a different music, too. And I think one of the beautiful things I love reading, you know, why I love reading poetry and why I love reading collection of essays and why I still love listening to complete albums of music mm-hmm. right? is that an artist possesses with within themselves. Right. Um, yeah a variety of, of musics, right? A variety of songs yeah. that they want to represent.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so when you mentioned for, you know, um, what is it? The, the lyricism, the, po- the, the, the poetry of, you know, um, how poets handle like prose, right? Yeah. I always think of how Jane Hirschfeld in her, her book, Nine Gates always says that every poet with every poem creates mm-hmm. a new language that. whole
2: So I brought that up because there are patterns and rep- uh, repetitions and alliterations and rhythm that poets employ that non-poet creative writers might not even consider. But I found that time and time again in your book. In the acknowledgments, uh, normally this throwaway section that I, I think most of us just go, yeah, let me get through this and then and then get on with the book, right? Um, But you write this every day for six weeks. I sat at my mother's porch in Chiang Mai uh, writing in a gray hoodie, even though the temperature was hot, even though I sweated and suffered. I am grateful for that hoodie. I am grateful for that porch and the fan aimed at my legs to chase away the mosquitoes. I could not have written a draft of this book anywhere else, but there, there as Thailand was trying to find herself again, there in the heat of the rainy, rainy season, there with my family, Ever present again that that wonderful poetic rhythm, man.
1: Oh, thank you. I always love acknowledgement pages, actually. And so I actually read them because I want to find something that perhaps goes against the typical acknowledgement pagements so are like, oh, here yeah. to my right. Um, and sometimes you find some really wonderful ones, right? Uh, like, you know, Tobias was saying, memory has its own story to tell or something like that. Or you find these new insights on how a writer puts together their work. I'm, you know, lately I've been so much more interested in the process of an artist rather than, rather than the product an artist creates, mm-hmm. but the mm-hmm. process in which they go into that. And I keep telling my students, take stock of your uh, your process. You know what's that like? That's going to teach you more about writing than anything else.
2: Uh, we were we were talking about vulnerability a little a little bit ago. In, in within that that vulnerability, there are terrific opportunities for humor, uh, which come out in this book. I found myself chuckling aloud at a, at, a, at a few places, a few passages. And grimacing when I realized that the story of Ralph and Tiffany was a way of uh, of compartmentalizing the the impasse with with your ex, mm-hmm. um, in in the conversation at the uh, at the restaurant with your uh, was it your cousin?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's in, I, that's in the chapter "Stupid Men," right? And talking yes. about like yep, yep, right. I mean. Um, Absolutely, <laughs> never... and that was
2: so. That was so beautifully done. I, I'm am a, a, a huge fan of of Ernest Hemingway, predominantly for his for his his dialogue and and the way he approaches dialogue and moves and and moves the action forward in this in this sort of noncommittal kind of way. So he's he's kind of he's kind of talking around a subject, but still mm-hmm. moving you forward. Through you know, uh, tour, you know, through the story, um, which I thought you did beautifully with with this piece.
1: It's also, I think, to me, how that section really illustrates my relationship with my cousin, my cousin yeah. Oy, right, who who had also gone through a a uh, breakup of her own, yeah. um, and how we 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 talk about we talk about our lives, but we also talk about it sideways, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, we never talk about it directly. We never mm-hmm. come out and say, like, this is what really happens, right? We, we always, there's something, again, I think protected, and it really illustrates not only our, my relationship with her, but how Thai people talk mm-hmm, about relationships, mm-hmm. is that they never want to talk about it like, this is what happened, Right we always go, well, this is like how it happened, right? <laughs> this mm-hmm. is a simulacra of what, what has happened. We go around it, right? And I think, you know, for, for a lot of uh, that, that section, like Ralph and Tiffany, that imagined space, yeah. right, um, was really, to me, and I keep saying, I, those imagined spaces in our, our lives are actually more telling mm-hmm. than our live space, right? I think we live in our heads, Um more than do we we live in a walking and talking world i think mm-hmm. you know and so those moments come out in really strange ways and for me they, they always come out in story <laughs> they always come out in fictions or what ifs right
2: and, and this book is a beautiful illustration of this it really is the essence of art to turn our internal pain uh into this larger communal beauty right.
1: right absolutely well you know
2: and in many ways like
1: there's this thing about failed relationships in Thailand. Yeah, um, that we <laughs> we end up just laughing about it. Uh-huh. We end up laughing about it, though. Though some of that spite and anger stick with us, right? It's um, the same
2: way in Irish families too, my friend. Right? You know,
1: but, <laughs> but there's something about that, and, and that 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 is both comedic to us about what we had gone through,
0: uh-huh. right?
1: and comedic about you know who we are now striving to find our feet there's something funny about that right that we fall but we'll get up <laughs> we may not walk the same way again but we'll get
2: up i, I had this I, I don't know if you remember the uh, the band the judy bats uh but uh in in i am sad the uh the the second uh, the second story in, in the book um there, there was a song some years ago where they, where they uh, called convalescing in Spain, where he's writing this fictitious letter to that he's never going to send to to a long lost love, and how he's he's there in Spain and sort of getting over getting over that that heartache in an in a somewhat unfamiliar place or in, at least in a beautiful place. I couldn't help, but but hear that song in in that in that chapter, the the change from from the the first chapter, the the encounter with with a woman in in a a cheap motel and and that transition. It 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 really kind of had this the the first the first chapter had this sort of dusk feeling, at least at least in my mind, and then it opened up into this beautiful brightness. Uh, with I am sad,
1: and, and it's funny too. To me, I think about that chapter every time I think about writing um, that chapter. I, re- I literally think about um, the porch that 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 first section of that chapter exists on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think about it because it's one of my favorite areas because it's one of the brightest areas in terms of light, mm. right? Um, when I think of that area of the house, right now it's nighttime in Thailand, but um, <laughs> it's right behind me, the porch area that, that my mom does. is my favorite because of the brightness that surrounds that time. So, um, you know, thinking back mm-hmm. on that chapter now and when I first wrote it, I mean, it literally was written in the brightest place of, mm-hmm. of the house. And there is such a, maybe... Maybe what's represented in that chapter that that I'm, now I'm thinking about it now because it was literally the first thing that I wrote for this book was that mm-hmm, chapter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was the the moment where I was ready to to really take on these things right yeah. a moment of clarity that I was yeah. ready to start writing about it. And so I think that I'm, I'm so I'm so happy that that you had mentioned that because I never thought about it that way. I've never thought about that way, but I think there's a clarity in that light, right? That was being that was probably kind of transferring onto the writing itself, too.
2: It it does. It, and I was gonna ask you about that because you teach creative writing, if if that's something that you can teach, or if if that's if that's just a natural offshoot, I, I suppose, of writing at a place or about a place, depending upon your. Um, Your perception. So if if you have if you have this bright and lively image of of a place or impression of a place, if if somehow subconsciously that that is transferred onto the page via the words that you choose.
1: I, I think it does. I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can teach that, but I always tell my students to really be aware where they're writing. And yeah. yeah. what their writing looks like where they're writing, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the things, you know, that I, that I do nowadays in my classes, I challenge them um, with, for example, I say, set a timer for yourself for 20 minutes, right? Write mm-hmm. right in your room, if that's where you usually write, right there for 20 minutes. And after that timer goes off, close up your laptop or your notebook and travel on mm-hmm. campus to some other part of mm-hmm. campus and write and set another timer for 20 minutes, mm-hmm. right? And then travel to another part when the timer mm-hmm. goes off. One of the things that, that I love about that assignment for them is that they're, I think they're, they're they're allowing themselves to initiate with space differently, mm-hmm. right? You know, Kenyon college is a 100% residential college, right? The students are always there. They're not going to go anywhere. So when they write in their dorm rooms, which is usually old and darker. Is right? a different thing when they go to the library. This brand new library they have in Kenyan that is open space and bright, mm-hmm. right? And they actually, I you know, they're telling me right now that that's where they're more productive actually than their yes. They love that 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 communal space. Yeah, which I think yeah. is interesting too because we always think about writing as a very solitary act. You you hold yourself up in in a room and you write, but they're finding a lot more energy when they're out in a very communal, open, bright space, right? Any Mm -hmm. other other place. And then they move to the cafeteria and write, right? And that's a different experience, right? And so I do think one of the things, and I don't teach them, you know, it's hard to teach them how to gauge that space, but I think everyone has a different kind of algorithm when it comes to you know where they, where they, where they see themselves right or mm-hmm. what's, what's their process but it really begins to have them really take stock of themselves and what their writing does in each different space that they occupy right yeah. and I always tell them to vary up the routine don't always start in your room start start at the library and then maybe end in your room, right? So that mm-hmm. you can see maybe is this consistent or is it just what is it this is about? That's not, and that's my kind of writing process right now. I'm very dynamic. I'm not very static with my writing. Mm-hmm. I move around. I have to move around. I
2: have find you ever, like ever analyzed time... have you ever analyzed why why that is?
1: I haven't I, I have a friend who <laughs> data mines his mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. Right. Like he would he would write down how many words he wrote, right, in various places. So he has like a column on a spreadsheet or place,
2: right? right.
1: Words written, time uh-huh. written, right? And then uh-huh. he has found out that he writes the most at three o'clock in the library, right? The, one of the busiest times, right? Uh-huh. Uh, he writes the most words and most productive during that time and, and sitting in this area of the library. So I have a friend who does that. But, you know, for me, I think the right now, um, with just like the chaoticness of, like, my life, my writing my writing process now as a father is so different yeah. from my writing process when I didn't have a kid. <laughs> yeah. Right? When I didn't have a kid, I could be more static. I could stay in one place. I can do yeah. that. When I have a kid now, it's like, okay, I have 10 minutes.
2: Go. <laughs> right?
1: I have 10 uh-huh. minutes over here. Go. I have t- I'm in the car waiting for something. I have five minutes to go. <laughs> That's pretty much so I think it's really I think what, what what one really finds nowadays is that our writing process really reflects what what's happening in our lives too at the same time
2: I'm gonna I'm gonna finish up with this. Um, I think that uh, one really powerful element of this book uh, has to do with being in Thailand. You're telling an intrinsically human story something that we all go through we're all faced uh but you you're you're putting it into into this other stunning setting and then and then wrapping it up with the elements of of your thai experience with your thai family um mm-hmm. so we we get that really dynamic mix so that we're engaged personally on on one hand, uh, and then and then drawn into into the the exotic or the other nature of of the story. i'd I'd love you to to riff on that for a moment,
1: you know there there was a time during the the breakup where one of the biggest things was that I wanted to not return to the states. You know I didn't want to go sure. back. yeah, I wanted to stay in Thailand um or Hong Kong or any of the any you know there's a moment where I was looking actively looking for jobs just to be mm-hmm. away mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think that I found out about writing this and, and also one of the things that is so true to life is that you can't really escape these things they, they come with you they shadow yeah. you there's a the shadow that always follows. Yeah. I think what, what Thailand provides for me and I think this is something that every time I return to Thailand the thing that I really hold on to, is how Thailand forces me to slow down
0: mm-hmm. and
1: really see things in a different way, and I think it's because of how it's the it's the Buddhist part of this country, right? Um, mm-hmm. Buddhism is is the way of of being here, right? And mm-hmm. Buddhism mm-hmm. is so much about slowing down, seeing where you are, seeing where you know, looking at the paths that you could have taken. What would happen, mm-hmm. right? Really evaluate those things. And I think for me, Thailand became that moment. At least Thailand, when writing this book, became that place, became that that meditative space
0: mm-hmm.
1: to, to occupy. I really don't think I could have written this book back in the States. I think I needed to be surrounded not only by the Thai culture, um, the landscape of it, but really more than anything, the consistent love of my family um, that is, com- that's missing. Yeah, right. Yeah, when I'm in, yeah. when I'm in America, right. All yeah. like all 100% of my family is, are, they're all in Thailand. Right. And so I think that comfortable space that's created with the people I love most mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. was able to, I was able to sit there and write these things that were, that were, were weren't safe.
2: sukrun Sukrunrein. So is a memoirist essayist poet I'll, I'll keep i'll keep keep working on it brother uh, i'm gonna get I'll, I'll, I'll get it right uh ira is a memoirist essayist poet fiction writer and one of uh this year's book of the year award winners from the chicago writers association for a sumptuous memoir this jade world in the category traditional nonfiction. his website is buddhistboy.com and we'll post that in the notes below you bet we will
0: I'm to shoot, shoot you right, right down you off of your, your feet, feet
3: take you home with me Boom Boom the Yardbirds recorded in December 1963 released just 18 months after John Lee Hooker recorded his original classic version in May 1962 that's a young Eric Clapton on guitar the song never actually made it on a Yardbirds album but was released as a single in Germany in 1966 and later added to an updated version of their second album For Your Love The Animals would beat the Yardbirds in releasing Boom Boom and had a hit with the song in 196 Sixty five oh, yeah. For you love from 1965. Formed in Southwest London suburbs in 1963, the Yardbirds' early repertoire relied on the blues, especially the Chicago blues of Howlin Wolf, Muddy Waters, and Bo Diddley. Starting out in December 1963, as the blues sounds, the band quickly changed their name to the Yardbirds. Within weeks, original lead guitarist Top Topham left and was replaced by Eric Clapton on October 1963.
0: Talking, that's what I've got to say It used to be
3: the Yardbirds covered Mose Allison's I'm Not Talking. American jazz and blues pianist Mose Allison was known for mixing blues and jazz. Jeff Beck took over guitar duties for this piece, but if you're thinking that you're hearing Cream, you have locked into the Yardbirds' importance as a gateway to the classic music of 1970s and beyond. While the Yardbirds were building stronger rock and psychedelic sounds into their originals, Eric Clapton was still focused on exploring the blues.
0: By the way, his
3: You're a better man than I, first recorded by the Yardbirds on the 1965 album Have a Rave Up with the Yardbirds. The song was written by Mike Hugg, who would go on to form Manfred Mann. Having a rave up was also the first Yardbirds album released following the departure of Eric Clapton. Though he appears on side two, more and more work had now fallen to Jeff Beck, as well as session musician with the growing reputation, Jimmy Page. yardbirds with the original version of dazed and confused the song was originally written by american singer-songwriter jake holmes for his 1967 album the above ground sound of jake holmes with the departure of clapton the band approached page at the end of 1964 out of loyalty for his friend page declined the offer in 1966 bassist paul smith tired of touring left the band to pursue producing page took over the role of bassist when Beck departed later that year, Paige moved over to fill his lead guitar spot. The days they and
0: confused for so long, it's not true. Won't let a woman never bargain for you. Lots of people talking, few of them know.
3: Led Zeppelin's iconic version of Dazed and Confused. Yardbird singer Keith Relf would leave the band in 1968 on the eve of a Scandinavian tour. Drummer Jim McCarty would follow his friend to new projects. Vocalist and composer Terry Reid was asked to replace Relf, but a new recording contract took precedence. Reid recommended an unknown singer, Robert Plant. Plant recommended another unknown, friend and drummer, John Bonham. September 11th, 1964, a new quartet originally calling themselves the M&B Five opened at London's Marquee Theatre for the Yardbirds earlier that August. They had shortened their name to the Moody Blues. The song was written by Paul Smith and Jim McCarty. It's not hard to hear the similarities to the Moody Blues' 1967 Days of Future Past, a pivot from the blues-infused rockabilly sound off their first album, The Magnificent Moody's. There's a concept in physics known as a wormhole, a theoretical pathway that leads from one part of the universe through a singularity to emerge in another time in another part of the universe. The Yardbirds started us along that pathway from an early, unrefined musical sound of the early and mid-60s through their five-year journey with supergroups and a whole new sound with Cream and Derek and the Dominos, Led Zeppelin, Jeff Beck, and the Moody Blues. No small achievement. We leave you today with a Led Zeppelin classic, might. Tinker Tailor, Soldier Sailor. Wait, that's not Led Zeppelin, that's Keith Ralph and the Yardbirds with their song for off 1967's final Yardbirds studio album, Little Games, written by Jimmy Page. This is the song Remains the Same.
2: Like to thank my guests a link to all of our guests are in the notes below and if you You're like this program Remember, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button below for playtime i'm your host wc turk